Open your Bibles, if you would, the Gospel according to Matthew. Mark, Mark, Mark. Just need if you're listening. Mark, um, chapter 9. Our text this morning brings to an end, we've been talking about this for quite some time, an end Jesus' ministry uh, in, in Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. We've been commenting how, the, how this ministry has kind of been focusing more and more, um, deliberately training and teaching the disciples, um, if you will, wrapping up this period of preparation. He's now going to turn to Jerusalem, and he will not, after the end of chapter 9, he will not return to northern Israel, to Galilee, until after the resurrection. Um, he's also going to become more deliberate and forward in avoiding crowds. Now, that's already started, but as we do move forward, we're going to see Jesus putting even more effort into, into avoiding the public. There will be examples where he does speak to crowds, but it's going to be more and more smaller groups, almost you know, incognito. And I used to wonder about that a lot when I'd read that or I would you know, read that in a, in a commentary or something. I would think, you know, why does Jesus have to worry about you know, the authorities not knowing where he is. After all, he's Jesus, right? They're not going to lay a hand on him until he, you know, the right time. But as I thought about that this week, it came to me, he's got 12 disciples he's responsible for. And a lot of the things we see him do, especially in the latter part of, of all, all the Gospels, uh, is act in a way that protects the disciples. I hadn't thought about that before this week uh, in this kind of detail. And when you think about the way he prays at the, at the end of John's Gospel, in what we call the high priestly prayer, he says, Father, I kept them. I watched over them, and none of them were lost, but the son of perdition, referring to Judas, about whom it was written. So Jesus was very conscious of not just a threat to himself, but even more so a threat to his disciples that his increasing notoriety was bringing, and he was very deliberate to protect them. And I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me to know that in any circumstance, he does watch over us. He is careful to protect us. And so that, that's encouraging, encouraging to me. He said, Father, I was keeping them. I guarded them. So we pick up the text as Jesus is, is getting ready to leave Galilee. These are his, la his last words in the north. Um, Mark chapter 9, beginning in the 38th verse. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him. For there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he'd been cast into the sea. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it's better to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell into unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. For it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Father, we pray that as we look to it this morning, we would simply hear from you. That's our, that's our need today. And so, Father, we're confident as our hearts are open to you, you'll, you'll speak to us. 
And we're grateful for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've probably noticed I left two verses out, verses 44 and 46. We will address that when we get to them. Uh, again, our task this morning, look at these last words of our Lord uh, in, in Galilee. Um, and it's got some stuff in it that appears to be, like, not connected. Like, it's just kind of these series of things, and you reading it, you kind of wonder, like, is there something going on here that holds all these together? Or is it just like a laundry list of the last things that were said and done, right? Um, there's the whole question of strangers ministering in Jesus' name. There's the act of giving water to a follower of Christ and its reward. There's this whole issue of cutting off hands and feet and plucking out eyes. That's kind of different. And then there's this thing about salt. So is there a connection here? That's kind of an obvious, obvious question. Um, I would suggest there is, and so our first task is going to be to look through these events and see if we can identify what connects them and then ask how that, how that speaks to us. That's our task this morning. So first, uh, is there a central message here? And to answer that, we'll, like the hiss, as I said, just walk through the text. First, there's this question of strangers, people they didn't know that weren't part of the apostolic band ministering in Jesus' name, specifically casting out demons. John said, we saw them casting out demons, and we tried to hinder them. Now, the suggestion there is that whoever was casting out demons, and they, they weren't just like preaching Jesus, they are literally casting out demons, is that they were being successful. It, the text, natural reading of the text is they were doing it, and the demons were going out. And then John says, we tried to hinder them. And the suggestion there is that wasn't successful. So they're casting out demons, and the disciples tried to stop them, and it didn't work. They just kept right at it, right? And Jesus' response is really significant. He says to them, he says, don't, don't, try, to, don't try to stop them, uh, because nobody that's doing that can speak ill of me uh, right after that. In other words, to be able to do that, they have to have a right heart, mind, inclination of who I am. And then he says this in verse 40, he who is not against us, is for us. Now, we use a phrase like that a lot, don't we? We hear that a lot in literature. We, we hear people say that. You may see it. But we turn it around. It's like, you know, the gold rule versus the silver rule. We turn it around. We say, or we, heard it, we hear it said, that those who are not with us are against us. Fairly common expression in our language. But what Jesus said was, he who is not against us is for us. And the difference is significant. Jesus' expression is much more open. It's much more, if I can use the word, inclusive. And boy, as a church, the greater body of Christ, if we would get this, I think it would solve a lot of our problems. Because we tend to take an attitude that said, the one that's not with us, and we have our, you know, definitions of what we believe and who we are and we have this box of what a real Christian is and if somebody isn't fully in that box we put them out of the box now there's all the reasons in the world to have clear understandings of what we believe there's good good reason behind the doctrines we affirm but we also need to distinguish between that which is essential and that which is not we've talked about that a lot how Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that which is essential the things of first importance and if we share those things in common we should be able to work together and that is one I love the Samaritan's purse that we work with in the in the in the, in the Christmas boxes right good solid Christian organizations serving the Lord giving glory and honor to God Anybody really know the details of exactly what they believe? 
Do they fit in the box? No, they preach Christ. They preach the salvation message of Jesus and don't get entangled in the details, which they mean they're good things to talk about. They're good things to discuss, but they don't define whether or not we're in right relationship with the Lord. That's why I love HeartReach so much. I love it when I hear about the different, very different Christian groups working together in a powerful, powerful way. Much more inclusive. Jesus is extremely generous in this regard. He said, as long as somebody is not actively opposing me, we can work with him. Man, that would solve a lot of problems in the body of Christ if we could embrace that, right? The ministry of the kingdom of heaven will not be confined to one group's understandings, methods, ideas, or expression. Verse 41, he talks about a related thing, the offering a cup of cold water. It's pretty straightforward. The Lord sees and honors every act of service, no matter how small. As we embrace one another, especially those of differing details of faith, and as we serve one another, that blesses Christ. We talked last week about the importance. Evidently, Jesus still had that same child in his arms. That child that that the apostles, the disciples, would not normally have attributed much worth to. Jesus is here again. He's still affirming this child's worth and value. You serve this child. You minister to this child. And you're well taken care of. Verse 46, um, I'm sorry, uh, verse 43, Jesus kept, comes to the, uh, the challenging part of this passage. And this, this whole matter of cutting off of hands and feet, I don't think any of us Read this section without going, what exactly is he talking about there? Surely Jesus doesn't literally mean that we should be, you know, we should be right. But he says to do it. So what do we do with it? Um, several things to be said here. First of all, the references in verse 44 and 46, I didn't read them because most manuscripts, the best manuscripts, don't include them. We'll talk about why when we get there. Strongest manuscripts just simply doesn't have them. Um, and the, how they got added, there's no real accounting for, except to say somewhere in the translation process, those verses were added. Uh, and the problem with adding them where they shouldn't be added is it changes the emphasis of the text. By this threefold repetition of the unquenchable fires of hell, in light of what is being said about the plucking out of eyes and the cutting off of hands and feet, it shifts the emphasis to the avoiding hell, which is an important thing to do. It's extremely important that we avoid hell, but it's not the emphasis of the passage. We'll talk about that in a minute. It certainly is not the central message of the text. The central message is something even more important than the matter of avoiding hell. The central message of the text is how great it is to be part of the kingdom of God. How important it is to move toward Christ. Now, if I have to be warned about hell and move away from hell to get there, I'll take it. It works. But the important, the important message is that we move consistently toward Christ. If it's the fear of hell that keeps us that going that way, that's okay. But how much better if it's the joyous anticipation of heaven? That's the difference, right? Scripture teaches that hell is real, unimaginably horrific, and eternal. But the central thought of this text is the opposite part of that equation. The beauty and the joy of moving towards Christ. The unspeakable joy of Christ. Entering into life at whatever cost. 
entering into life. But what are this matter of cutting off hands and feet? Um, here's a spot where we need to talk about the text a little bit. Talk about what Scripture is. Scripture is, the Bible is, God's Word to us. And we believe that, it, and we're talking about the original manuscripts, the way Mark actually wrote Mark's Gospel, we believe every word is the exact word God intended it to be. Timothy says all Scripture is God-breathed. Theotnephmos meaning God breathed the words exactly as he wanted them on the text. Now, that's miraculous because the author's writing style, the author's vocabulary, the author's individual intent still comes through. But Scripture affirms every single word in the original manuscript are the exact words that God intended. And so all of the Hebrew and all of the Aramaic of the Old Testament, word for word, what God wanted... All of the Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and even a little Latin in the New Testament. Every word that God wanted. But here's the amazing part. He did it with just plain old human language. These are human languages. Hebrew is no more spiritual than any other language. Just like Greek is no more spiritual than any other language. The text... Has, is spiritual because God used those languages to speak these truths. And here's the important part. With that, and this is the beautiful part, with that, all of the color of language is there. When you're reading Scripture, Old Testament, New, you see all the tools of human language there. We see poetry. We see prose. We see the tools and the, and, and the art of rhetoric. We see all kinds of things. We see... Sarcasm. Are you comfortable with Jesus being sarcastic? I am. I think it's great. Because all the way back to the Old Testament, that marvelous passage with Samuel. You know, Samuel had told uh, Saul, or God told Saul through Samuel, well, you know, when you go to fight this battle, I want you to wipe that city out completely. The ungodliness there is so profound, you've got to completely clean the slate. Don't leave anything alive, which Saul didn't do. He killed the army, he killed the people, but he didn't kill the king. Most importantly, he didn't, keep the, he didn't kill the animals because there was some, some fine-looking livestock that Saul left alive. This is in 1 Kings, or rather 1 Samuel. When Samuel caught up with him, it's a beautiful scene. Samuel catches up with King Saul, and Saul says, I have done the will of the Lord. My paraphrase of that passage is, is Samuel saying, I am sorry, you're going to have to speak up a little louder because I can't hear you over those sheep. And you're going to have to repeat that because I can't hear you of the lowing of cattle. The prophet's actual words were, what is this lowing of sheep and of cattle? That's just plain sarcasm. I'm sorry. And how about Jesus? Jesus in John chapter 20. He's just gotten done. I'm sorry, John chapter 10. He's just gotten done with the parable of the good shepherd. Marvelous parable. And when he was all done, the last thing he said in that parable was, I and the Father are one. And that was too much for some of the Jewish authorities. And they start picking up rocks. And Jesus says, I have done many miracles in my Father's name. For which one of them are you stoning me? That's not sarcastic. Yes, that's beautiful sarcasm, right? So we see all the colors of human language in the text. And if we remember that, it, it makes some of these passages that leave us scratching our head they become a little more clear. See, one of those tools that we all are aware of, maybe can't put a name on it, is the tool of hyperbole. 
Hyperbole. Now, again, some of you know what that is. I don't mean to insult you, but in case you don't, hyperbole is simply an intentional exaggeration. Here's the key. That is so great, it's obviously not true. So if you recommend a book to me, and you pastor, this is a really good book, and I say to you, oh, I've already read that book, right? I've read that book like, 500 times. Now, you know I have not read the book 500 times, right? Nobody reads a book 500 times, right? That's hyperbole. I'm trying to stress that I've read it a lot, and so I use this ridiculous number. But if I say to you, oh, man, I've read that book like 50 times, is that hyperbole? No, that's a lie. <laughs> it's, an, it's a simple exaggeration, which is a lie. See, there has to be a gulf. It's one of the rules of hyperbole. There has to be a gulf between the number I use and believability, right? Now, you need to be careful. You need to be careful, right? Okay. What if I told you, um, what if I told you I'd, I'd read all three books of The Lord of the Rings 50 times? Is that possible? Christopher Lee, the actor that played the White Wizard, 50 times. He was a total Tolkien geek, right? So you, you got to be clear if you're going to hyperbolize. You got to go way past. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He said, if, it, if it's what it, if what it takes for you to get in the kingdom is to pluck out an eye or cut off a hand or cut off a foot, do it. Now, did the disciples understand that was a, an exaggeration? Yes. How do we know that? None of them did it. There's not a single record of any one of those individuals Oh, in the passage of time, plucking out an eye, cutting off a hand. Now, some people did it later on, those kinds of things and other kinds of things, and Scripture addresses that. Paul addresses it in Colossians, and he also addresses it in Galatians. And he says things like in Colossians, those things consisting of severe treatment of the body, which are of no value against the sinful flesh. So number one, Jesus didn't mean to do it. And number two, it doesn't even work. Because here's the sad truth about that. If you're going to go that route, if you're going to try to pluck out an eye to avoid looking at something you shouldn't look at, or cut off a hand to avoid taking or touching or doing something you shouldn't do, or if you're going to cut off a foot to avoid going where you shouldn't go, guess what? It won't do you any good. Because you're going to do it anyway. See, we are so good at sin. We are so good at it. If I could pluck out one thing in my character or being to actually keep me from sinning, it would have to be my heart. And that's not a reference to the physical heart. Because you could replace this physical heart with a mechanical thing and I'd be the same old sinner I was before. See, the answer to eternal life isn't anything we do. It's what he did. And it was, the, it, was the, it was the things that happened in his physical body. The pain and the anguish and the suffering of his physical flesh that bought my salvation and yours, that opens the door to heaven, right? What Jesus is saying is, this is how far you should be willing to go. This is the recognition you need to have. This is, this is the appreciation for what hell is and what heaven is. So that even if you could get there by plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand or taking, you do all of it because you understand the surpassing value of eternity in his presence.
And the reason I say, going all the way back to that, that whole issue about not emphasizing avoiding hell as much as being with Jesus. Now, they're both saying almost the same thing. You want to avoid hell, you want to get you. I love the old song by Mylon Lefebvre, and I'm really dating myself here. He'd get the whole congregation shouting, Love God, hate sin! It was a great time in Christian music. <laughs> Loving God is more important than hating sin. Because if all, we, if all we do is hate sin, and if all we're trying to do is avoid hell, as good as that is, Jesus isn't in that picture. If my focus is on loving God and pursuing eternity in his presence, Jesus is in that picture. And that should be my greatest motivation. And that's what this whole section is about. This whole section is about seeking Jesus. So the matter of cutting off body parts, that's hyperbole, but it's hyperbole to emphasize the surpassing greatness of pursuing his kingdom. Last point in the section. The salt thing. This, this one really confused me for a long time because it just seems like it's just a bunch of disconnected things talking about salt, right? Um, four statements. Everybody be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it becomes unsalty, what good, you, what, what good is it? How can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be, be at peace with one another, right? Let's talk about salt just a little bit. Um, Salt was, of course, incredibly important. It's incredibly important to human existence. It was especially important in the Middle East. Uh, throughout antiquity, Scripture, Old Testament, New talks about salt. The secular literature talks about what is said about salt. Um, and there's certain consistent themes, both in Scripture and in secular writing. It's preservative qualities. It's flavoring qualities. It's clean, all of these things, right? Um, but what... What's going on in this passage? Uh, I struggled with it a lot. Great article, um, particular scholar out of, out of um, Cambridge, pointed something out. See, the part that really confused me, uh, the idea that um, we'll all be salted with fire. I got that. We'll all be salted with fire. Each one of us will experience the trials and the difficulties of life, and that has that same kind of purifying effect that salt does, that same kind of cleansing effect that salt does. The things that challenge us, James talks about, considering it all joy when you encounter trials, when we're salted with fire. Right? We got that, okay? But the business about salt being becoming unsalty, that one confused me a lot. Because you can't do it. Salt can't become anything other than salt. It's one of the more, the most stable chemical compounds on the earth. And it's really hard to make salt anything other than salt. So what did that mean? The, the, the truth is, again, this excellent article came out of Cambridge. Um, most of what we think of as salt isn't pure salt, right? We think nothing of iodized salt, right? Well, that's salt and iodine, right? In the Middle East, how many of you use, use like the flavored salts in your cooking, you know? Yeah, they have different things they add or are naturally occurring in the salt. Uh, last time in Hawaii, we found like four different Hawaiian salts. Really cool to play around with, right? Um, even around the Sea of Galilee, which, I'm sorry, the Dead Sea, even around the Dead Sea, which supplied about 95% of the salt they used in the Middle East, there were different areas they drew salt from, 
And the difference wasn't in the salt itself, because salt is salt, it's what other minerals were in the salts. In some places, other minerals had leached into the salt that made it very unpleasant, only the poor folk used that. There was another area, another part of the Dead Sea, where the clay surface underneath the salt beds had a leaching property that pulled some of the real unpleasant minerals out of the salt. So that was the salt the rich folks used, right? It's all salt, though, but it's salt plus. And here's the fascinating thing, um, again, this article out of Cambridge pointed out, is that when salt is stored, the people storing the salts in antiquity had to be especially mindful of what other minerals were in it, because if they didn't store it properly, those minerals would change. And if those minerals changed, the salt became useless. Could, simply couldn't use it. The salt itself hadn't changed, but the other things in it were effective. And here's the whole point. The other things in the salt, the other minerals, were affected by their environment. We have the purity of the Spirit of God within us. Every one of us, born again, is filled with His Spirit. And that cannot be changed. Unfortunately, none of us are pure salt. We've got other things of the world bound up and caught inside of us, and those things are all easily affected by the environment in which we live, and those can re render even the salt that is in us worthless if we're not careful. So it's a very sincere warning about understanding what is inside of us, being conscious of what is in us, what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are, and being mindful of the influence of our environment on that. I know the things I should let myself be exposed to. I know the things I shouldn't. I need to be mindful of that. Then he says, have salt in yourselves. Be conscious of the fact that we are of such a makeup that we need the stuff. We're made of this world. I want everyone to lose track of that. And with the trials and the difficulties of this world, we need to embrace those and understand the work they're accomplishing in our lives. Finally, he says, be at peace with one another. I had the hardest time attaching that one to the other ones. And then I came to realize this. When I begin to understand how much of this world is in me, my weaknesses, my vulnerabilities, and how easy it is for me to allow the influence of Christ in me to be diluted or polluted if I'm not careful what I expose myself to. The more I'm aware of that, the more compassionate and understanding I become of others. And, and the, the slower I am to, like those Pharisees, bend over and start picking up rocks. It's much easier for me to be at peace with others and their foibles and their weaknesses when I understand my own weaknesses. Understanding what I've made of, where I come from, right? The salt. So for us, the message is pretty straightforward. The message that Jesus wrapped up his ministry in northern Israel and Galilee with. Do I give the pursuit of his kingdom the greatest priority in my life? Or have I tried just to attach it to all my other priorities? We've been talking about that in our discussion of basic values and assumptions. The essential question I should be asking myself every day is simply this. Do I weigh every decision I make in light of eternity? Because if I'm not weighing every single decision I make in light of eternity, 
I'm not weighing my decisions carefully enough. Because that's all that really counts. In light of eternity, every, you know, because every decision I make impacts somebody else, for good or for ill. Every decision I make will have an influence on the people around me and on me. Am I asking myself, how does it impact eternity? I know that seems extreme, and in one sense it is, but in another sense, it is the most reasonable question I can ask myself every day. It is the most reasonable question I can ask myself. How are my decisions, how are my actions approaching, or rather affecting, my orientation towards eternity? This life is so transient. It is so quick. It passes even as we speak. And the idea that our actions in this world really do impact eternity is both a sobering and an exciting reality if we act with wisdom. To think that the things I do here, the things you and I do here, really are game changers for eternity. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord, as we look to it this morning, Lord. Um, we, we see our Savior having invested so much in, the, in this band of followers, these disciples, Lord, having invested in so much in them, and we sense, Father, as we read the text, he understood the time thing, how time was closing in, and certainly as he turned his attention to Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him there, um, that had to affect, Lord, had to affect him. Father, it would have been really easy as he turned his gaze to Jerusalem to fix his thinking on himself. That would have been the human thing to do. To start thinking about himself, Lord, what he had to do, what he was going to suffer. Lord, it is so encouraging to us to see that he continued with an even greater sense of urgency to pour himself into his followers, Lord. And it thrills our heart to know that with that same urgency, you would pour yourself into us. Help us, Father, to simply have open hearts to what you would accomplish in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.